Driving that coach. 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 And welcome to another edition of Dropping That Culture with JD and AJ. I'm JD. And I'm AJ. And uh, we're here again for another week in the uh, 2020. Hope all you folks out there are safe. And uh, thank you again for listening to our podcast. Uh, first of all, we actually like to thank some of our newest listeners uh, from probably Texas and Illinois. Thank you very much. Uh, we really appreciate you guys joining us here. Uh, we always like the uh, new listeners and all the good stuff. And uh, as a kind of a gift and a little appreciation to our new listeners, um, AJ and I have been discussing something. I think I'll let AJ go ahead and uh, describe it to you guys, okay? Uh, yeah. Well, and, and again, uh, thank you to our new listeners, uh, Texas and Illinois. Uh, JD and I have both spent a considerable amount of time in both states over the years. Uh, great food, great music, uh, just hell of a good time. So we're, uh, we're, we're glad you found us and you're here for some good geeking out. Um, so something we've decided we want to start doing because uh, it'll help us and it might be fun for you. Uh, if you leave us a five-star review, uh, you can do it on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever. Five-star review, we will read it on air, um, no matter what it says. So have as much fun with that as you'd like. Um, one of the things that uh, we think might make this even a little more interesting, a little more fun as a new segment is we'll offer to, uh, to have it read by Roger Moore. You can have it read by Gary Busey, one or both of us, however you'd like to do it, and we're going to have some fun with it. And I think, J.D., you mentioned you might have a, another twist on that too, right? Uh, yes. In addition to being able to read reviews and different voices, I'm um, offering if you want a song or anything done, like especially like the chorus of a song done with the Eddie Murphy laugh, I'm willing to do that as well. So just so there's another fun thing that we can do for you guys. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 2020, man, you gotta love these Zoom podcasts. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> We're just trying to help on each other, folks. So it's a, sorry if there's a little bit of a pause here and there. Yeah. So it, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you want to go ahead and get into uh, A? Yeah, let's uh, let's do our uh, our first segment here with uh, with Eddie Murphy. <laughs> All right, so this week I've got three names. Uh, there's a bit of a theme. I've actually gone with uh, some actresses, all of them newer. Um, so we'll see how, uh, how quickly you can make this connection. A couple of them, again, bona fide movie stars, but maybe they've done a little more TV than movies. So we'll see how you can do. First one, Rachel Bilson. Rachel Bilson. Hmm. That's a, ooh, good pick. <laughs> uh, I know, yeah, I know from the OC, that's really the main thing. Yeah, you are right. She is kind of a... She's more TV than movies, but she's done movies. You want you want a recent film? Uh, well, hold on, let me think, let me think, let me think. I, I'm pretty sure I can find it. Hold up. Ugh, give me a second here. Ah, ah. Okay, okay, I think I got it. I think I got it. All right. So let's go with. 
Damn, I thought I, thought I had it. <laughs> um, hmm. All right, if you want to, re- yeah, if you want to help me out, give me a recent movie. Now. All right, Jumper. Oh, yeah, she was a fucking Jumper. Okay, I got it now. All right, cool. All right, so Rachel Bill was in Jumper, Christensen. Kate Christensen was in with Samuel Jackson. Samuel Jackson was in Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. I mean, I still had to help you, but that was. <laughs> Wouldn't say gave you jumper. That's a, a little more. That's a little more of an outside kind of film. That works. I like jumper. I like, well, I would actually want to go see it in the theater. I remember that now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That was that was pretty easy. This one I don't think will be quite as hard, but I'll throw it in there. Blake Lively. Oh, uh, yeah. No, th- yeah. This will be pretty easy, actually. Uh, Blake Lively was in Green Lantern with Ron Reynolds. Ron Reynolds was in, I don't want to go Sam Jackson again. Um, okay, all right. Ron Reynolds was in Deadpool 2 with Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin was in Avengers Infinity War with. Anthony Mackie. Yeah, I got that right. Anthony Mackie. Anthony Mackie was in uh, Anthony Mackie was in Eight Mile. <laughs> got it. Eight Mile with Brittany Murphy. Brittany Murphy was in Clueless with Stacy Dash. Stacy Dash was in Mo Money with Damon Wayans. Damon Wayans was in Beverly Hills Cop with Eddie Murphy. Dude, that was right on the edge. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I, was, I was searching. Bro. I was like, but God damn it, I got it. Well, but I'm saying, you could get there, but you almost, I think you almost blew through the seven. I think that was on the seventh. Almost, yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah, I got there. <laughs> All right, and then this last one will be super easy. We went from hardest to easiest today. Mila Kunis. Who? Mila Kunis. Okay, Mila Oh, that, yeah, it will be super easy. Okay, Mila Kunis was in, um, well, well, which way do I want to go with that? Okay, uh, yeah, I'll go this route. Uh, Mila Kunis was in uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall with uh, Russell Brand. Yeah, let's go with Russell Brand. Russell Brand was in Earth. You know what? Let's let's retrace that. Let's retrace that. I'm, I mean, you say movie, but let's retrace that. Okay, so let's go to the, back to the beginning. Okay, so uh, Mila Kunis was in. Oh, fuck! I know this route. Uh, Mila Kunis was in. Um, Book of Eli with Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington was in uh, Mo Better Blues with Wes Snipes. Wes Snipes was in uh, Dolomite Is My Name with Eddie Murphy. I, I mean, that was one of the two easier ones. I was kind of surprised when you were going forgetting Sarah Marshall. I thought you were actually going to go via Ted. Oh, yeah, that's right, Ted. 
Yeah, she was in fucking. Yeah, she's in Ted One. That's right. But yeah, like, well, I, I got it. So it, it, it don't matter. But okay, but we got our three names. So it's Rachel Bilson, uh, Mila Kunis, and Blake Lively. Correct. Rex, another successful uh, rendition for you. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> Shoot, that damn Blake Lively one was hard. Cause he, I was like, who the fuck is Blake Lively? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but okay, yeah, so cool. All right, uh, so that was Eddie. So let's go ahead and get into our other favorite segment here. WWBS, what would Busey say? Hey, this is Gary Busey talking to Gary Busey. What time is it, Gary? It's time for WWBS. What would Busey say? What are we talking about today, Gary? All right, so I know Gary Busey uh, has had a long and storied career in Hollywood, and I'm just curious as to whether or not Mr. Busey's had any experiences with the great Red Fox. <sighs> oh, Red. <laughs> oh, I used to love me some Red Fox, man. Even before I was an actor, I was a fan of his comedy. He's great, man. Like, actually, Back in the day, you couldn't even listen to his albums out in the open. You actually had to go to your basement and listen to him at like different parties and stuff like that. But yeah, because he would get nasty and go blue, and I fucking loved it, man. Finally, I actually got to meet him in the 70s, man. It was during the height of Sanford and Son, and he had this big house over in Mulholland, man. It was crazy. He had these like giant fucking dogs. I think they were like Doberman Pinchers mixed with fucking demon dogs or some shit like that. They were weird, man. But they were huge. And next thing you know, I'm over his house. He's like chilling with like slappy white and all these other, you know, borscht belt black comedians and all this other shit. It's pretty crazy, man. And I actually offered my services to play Lamont. And he's like, okay, we already got Lamont. uh, And he's black. And uh, that's well established now, but uh, we don't need a white Lamont. He's like, come on. I was like, come on, you know, let's, let's change it up. Let's be the revolutionary, man. Let's say, like, uh, something happened to Lamont, got to some sort of skin lining incident, and they say, you know, I'm Lamont. I think it'd be cool. And, Rock, uh, and Red Fox was like, you know, and the Red Fox was like, uh, no, I mean, you know, that kind of shit he does. <laughs> uh, he would pay the heart attack. That was always my favorite shit, man, I swear. I've actually had heart attacks. And I've tried to do that, but the pain is so hard and so intense that I tend to forget. But it's still kind of funny to watch. I mean, I love the Red Fox, man. I was very sad to hear about his past in the early 90s. I was out doing my own thing. What I hear Eddie Murphy pay for his funeral, I think that's a very big thing to him. I always love Red Fox. I really do. And I, I really respect him, and I really respect his comedy because he was dirty, and I fucking love that. I love Love that kind of freedom, man. Respect to Red Fox, Tiger Blood, the White Lamont, <laughs> White Lamont, <laughs> White. Apparently, <laughs> changes his bone structure. <laughs> A White Lamont. <laughs> Well, they're going to make him white go all the way. Gary Busey's about as white as you can get back then. Yeah, right, boy. Go all the way. All right. Well, Gary. I just said thank you, Gary. That's all. 
Yeah, that was great, Gary. How you doing today, Gary? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm Gary Busey. I'm doing great. All right, so let's go ahead and move along to our next segment, which is a favorite, coming a favorite show. Roger Reed's Rap. Good evening, I'm Roger Moore. You may remember me from my time as Bond, James Bond, and I once exchanged bodily fluids with Louis Jordan. This is not so much a commentary as it were, it's more of a one-sided conversation as I cannot talk to you and you cannot talk to me. And now for another edition of Roger Reed's Rap. What is our selection for this evening? For today's selection, I have decided to pick a classic from the early 2000s. Definitely one of my particular favorites. Get Low by the Union Twins featuring Little John and the East Side Boys. <clears throat> the stanza. Brum bum 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 bum. Brum bum 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 bum. Brum bum 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 bum. Brum bum bum. Bum, 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 bum. 369, stand real fine. Move it to you, suck it to me one more time. Get low, get low, get low, get low. Through the window, to the sweat drop down my balls. All you bitches crawl. Ah, oh, skeet, skeet, motherfucker. Ah, oh, skeet, skeet, goddamn. Ah, oh, skeet, skeet, motherfucker. Ah, oh, skeet, skeet, goddamn. Charlie Crunk, so fresh, so clean. Can she fuck that? Question been harassing me in the mind. This bitch is fine. I've came to the club about 50, 11 times now. Can I play with your panty line? Cub only said you need to calm down. Security guards sweating me now. All drunk than a motherfucker threatening me now. I'm sorry, I'm 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 missing distractions here with this song. It's very very vulgar, but I'll, I'll continue. I'll continue. I'll continue. Those are okay. <laughs> She's getting crunk in the club. I mean work. I like to see that female twerking, taking the clothes off, but ATO don't disrespect it. Pop your pussy like this, because Ching Yang twins in this BIH. Little John Eastside boys with me, and we all like to see ass and titties. So bring your ass over here, ho, and then see you get low if you want this stuff. Now take it to the floor, and if your ass want to act, you can keep your ass where you're at. <sighs> Such vulgar song. Let me see you get this. This is actually a chorus from Little John. So vulgar. Let me see you get low, you scared, you scared, drop that ass to the floor, you scared, you scared. Let me see you get low, you scared, you scared, drop that ass to the floor, you scared, you scared. Drop that ass, yeah, check it fast, yeah, pop that 
ass to the left and the right. Yeah. Drop that ass. Yeah. Shake it fast. Yeah. Pop that ass to the left and the right. Yeah. Now back, back, back it up. 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 Now stop. Oh, then wiggle with it. Yeah. Stop. Oh, then wiggle with it. Yeah. Stop. Oh, then wiggle with it. Yeah. Stop. Oh, then wiggle with it. Wiggle with it. Thank you. And this has been another episode of Roger Reed's Rap. I am drunk. I don't know how, how into reading rap lyrics Roger is, but he, he seems to have pretty good timing. Yeah, it's like, I guess the Roger's like, the more vulgar, the more he has trouble reading shit. Like, he's just like, you know, he, you know, he's a refined gentleman, man. Heavy, crass-ass lyrics like this, man. Like, I, I, can, I can see it. I can feel it. But, you know, it is what it is, man. I'm just, I'm always way more um, uh, entertained when he runs up against words he won't say. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 stop, the stop old and wiggle with him. I don't, think he, I don't think he likes the repetitive shit. He's not, yeah, definitely not a fan of the repetitive. I mean, it was it was kind of a nice, but but he had a dream. It was almost. Yeah, bum, bum. I got he was he really feeling the brum bum bum. It was borderline becoming like the little drummer boy. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, blame Roger. Yeah. <laughs> it was coming brum bum drunk ass drummer boy brum bum bum. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's> funny. <laughs> okay, folks. So let's, so let's go ahead and get into uh, the big segment before we get into the potatoes. Let's take a podcast. Drop that news. Dropping that news. All right, well, we, we actually had a thing or two happen this week, right? Yeah, actually, the main thing that happened over this past weekend, they had the uh, DC Fandom kind of digital, almost kind of Comic-Con-ish experience. Uh, basically, it was initiated by DC Comics. We actually talked about this a few weeks ago where DC actually laid off a lot of people. But uh, Fandom was already uh, in the process of being created. It's already in the process of being marketed. So they went on with fandom. Uh, and it pretty much was a showcase of the latest and greatest in terms of like things that DC is coming out with. They did video games, TV shows, and more importantly, the movies. Now, during DC fandom, we actually had a number of trailers uh, debut um, during this particular time frame. Uh, the first one, <coughs> excuse me, which wasn't really a trailer per se, it's more of a teaser was The Rock finally introducing a somewhat of a teaser for Black Adam, uh, the long-rumored superhero, well, anti-hero movie uh, from DC. Uh, basically, it's going to be a spinoff or a prequel, really, to Shazam, which came out last year. We talked about it also on the podcast before. Uh, the whole character of Black Adam is basically this character uh, that the wizard Shazam picked Billy Batson as his newest champion, but Black Adam was his first champion uh, back in ancient Egypt. Unfortunately, um, Black Adam was corrupted by the power and became a tyrant. 
given his own form of you know justice. And of course, that required a lot of people losing their lives and pretty much perverted everything that the whole power was supposed to stand for. So the character of Black Adam was banished uh, into space in the comic books uh, to live out on the other side of the universe for like 5,000 years. And finally, he makes his way back to Earth and all hell breaks loose. That's pretty much the story that he's sticking with uh, legend, uh, from this tra- from the little teaser that they uh, put out The Rock. Now, The Rock himself narrates it, and it's basically made up of concept art from the movie. And it looks pretty good. And, you know, it shows The Rock in costume, shows like what the city, uh, well, actually, the, the city he comes from is called Kondok. And uh, it's supposed to be like this Middle Eastern city, and it looks great. It looks like a you know, great ancient civilization. Um, but yeah, they, they still haven't actually started because of COVID-19. Uh, but yeah, The Rock has been getting ready for this for years. They've actually been teasing him as, the, as Black Adam for damn near 10 years now. So he is ready to do this. And I'm ready for him to do it because the concept all looks fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where this one goes. I mean, you you definitely kind of got me up to speed a lot more on Shazam, but um, yeah, this Black Adam concept and having The Rock involved, I think this could be this could be a hell of a hell of a, a, a film to watch. I mean, the, like you said, the concept art looks great. The team they're putting together for this, I think this is going to be. It's got all the potential anyway. Winner. Oh yeah. Um, Black Adam has really become a very popular character within the last 10, 15 years. Uh, he's basically become, like, just like I described him, basically an anti-hero. Uh, kind of a villain, but also just kind of a badass hero, like, kind of toes that line. And like, I'm really interested to see how he, you know, goes up against, you know, the super optimistic Zachary Levi character uh, versus this guy, you know, uh, that basically, you know, was the first champion, got kicked out for being the first champion. And he's like, so this is your new champion? Fuck this guy. I can do better, that kind of thing. So that's pretty much the dynamic of Black Adam and Sam. I'm really interested to see that on screen because if you ask any people, especially in modern comics, because like most of the modern interpretation of Sam on cartoons and uh, different things, whatever, Black Adam is usually his villain. So. Yeah, I think, I think it's something there. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely something there, man. It's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the next trailer that actually came out during this uh, DC fandom is the, uh, it's actually a second trailer uh, for the new Wonder Woman sequel, Wonder Woman 1984, which, of course, was the sequel to the big hit with uh, Gal Gadot. Uh, really the first, in most people's eyes, the first successful DCEU movie. Uh, and uh, like I said, you get to see a little more footage. There's it's a lot of the same stuff from the first trailer that came out uh, like late last year. Uh, and actually, you get your first look at Kristen Wiig as uh, Wonder Woman's arch enemy, the cheetah. And it's full-on cheetah. You see her for a, a few brief seconds towards the end of the trailer. And she, yeah, she's full-on cat mutant woman. And it's pretty cool to see because the cheetah, like I said, is like if you ask anybody who's Wonder Woman's arch enemy, it's the cheetah. Uh, they've been together forever. The, my first iteration of that combo was during the um, challenge of the Super Friends TV show back in the 70s because like, they would pair the heroes from the Justice League with villains that, from the Rose Gallery. So Cheetah and Wonder Woman were always pitted against each other. 
Uh, in fact, there's actually one great episode where they did a time travel episode where Cheetah went back, took Wonder Woman's place, and became Wonder Woman. And I thought that was a really cool thing to do. Um, but yeah, like I said, I'm really looking forward to it. Like I said, Chris Pine is back as Steve Trevor. Uh, we got uh, Pedro Pascal as the really the main villain of the movie, Maxwell Lord. Was, I think he's kind of like a telepath. It's weird how they kind of showing him in this movie. It's kind of hard to tell what his powers are. And again, like Crystal Wig as the cheetah. So it's kind of weird to see her like physically fit and like being serious uh, for a movie. So I was actually pretty intrigued by it. I think I think people love it. Love the first one. I'm sure they love this one. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely uh, definitely some good potential there. And I, I mean, it's very easy. I think when you do something like the cheetah to kind of have a, a, a miss like you did with the Jared Leto Joker where you get too crazy with the, uh, with the costume side of stuff. And I think they did a pretty decent blend there. I think it's, uh, it, it, it's spot on. I think they hit the nail on the head. So I'm excited to see it. Yeah. Also, two quick things that they did for the upcoming reboot slash sequel for The Suicide Squad entitled The Suicide Squad. Uh, big difference between the first movie and this movie. The second movie here is going to be directed by James Gunn and written by James Gunn from the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Yeah. And they did uh, two things for, uh, well, two things for the movie of Suicide Squad. Um, they did what they call a roll call, which basically just showed all the uh, cast members and the different characters they're going to be using, which is a lot of them. I think at least close to a dozen characters. Um, uh, the main favorites that people are going to remember are Harvey Quinn, who was in the first movie, played by Margot Robbie, and uh, Captain Boomerang, played by Jack Courtney, also in the first movie. Um, they also got some replacements, like Will Smith's not in it anymore, uh, a couple of the other people are not in it, basically all the other people are not in it anymore. But they added some new characters, like uh, you got a character, King Shark, which we mentioned on the Harley Quinn, when we talked about the Harley Quinn TV show, he's one of the characters. Uh, they added Idris Elba as this character called Bloodsport, kind of a vigilante type character. Uh, I think they added uh, Michael Rooker as a character uh, who was also in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. And uh, they got Sean Gunn, of course, uh, playing a character named Weasel, and it's going to be, you know, multi-cap and all that stuff, just like he did Rocket Raccoon in the Guardians movies. Um, and John Cena as a character called the Peacemaker, which apparently is like this really dickhole version of Captain America with a big gun and shit. Um, and uh, they got other actors in here, like Pete Davidson from Saturday Night Live, who's going to be a character called Blackguard. And it's a really huge cast. And, like, and of course, oh yeah, another favorite from the first movie, uh, Viola Davis as the leader of the Suicide Squad, Amanda Waller. Uh, so yeah, they did a big thing, like a little teaser trailer of this, this role call of the actual actors themselves and the roles. And then they actually did a actual sneak peek that actually shows you the filming. And you can tell just by the enthusiasm of James Gunn that he, is really, he really had a good time shooting this movie. Because actually, this, he shot this movie. Uh, there was a brief period where he had like a little bit of a hiatus from Marvel. I think they had some kind of disagreement. Well, no, what, what happened was he got, uh, he got a little cancel culture. There was some joke. Oh, yeah, that's right. He, he made a joke and people started tripping on him in Marvel. Yeah, I remember that. Disney, I think it's more of a Disney thing than Marvel, though. Right, yeah, well, as I say, it was a tweet from, like, like two or three years before the whole falling out thing happened. Like, yeah. it was tweets and people drug up, they made a big stink about it, and Disney was like, all right, well, whatever. So then they dropped him. But this actually leads to the one question I had uh, about it when I saw James Gunn was going to be directing. Do, do you, as a 
MCU guy, do you feel betrayed that one of the directors who's, who's contributed so much to the MCU has now traded teams and jumped over here to DC to, to help us out? No, I don't at all. Um, I was actually happy when I heard he was doing that because like, I, I thought he got shafted um, oh, yeah. by the whole tweet, tweet thing. So I was like, yeah, fucking like, I, I, was like, I was like, Marvel's loss is DC's gain. So like, it's not, I really don't have a dog in the fight in terms of the Marvel versus DC thing. I just want good people that I know to make good movies to make good movies. And I thought the first Suicide Squad was a fucking failure. Mm-hmm. So I was like, fucking somebody like James Gunn to take over. Like, shit, yeah, let's do it. I'm, I'm with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you, and I'm actually excited to see him back. And, I mean, people may or may not know this about us, but um, we're, we're pretty simple when it comes down to it. Uh, when it comes to comedy, people need room to, uh, to experiment and to fail, and uh, that's, that's how you end up with breakthrough, hilarious stuff. So, you know, whether or not I think something's funny, if uh, somebody's been trying to make a joke and it lands or doesn't land, we're going to give them a wide berth because uh, – I mean, we, we're waiting. I mean, what's, what was the last great, like, comedic film you've seen, right? I mean, we keep ending up in droughts. We have to go two or three years before we get something great out there. So uh, we believe in, the, in people having the opportunity to go out and, and find and do something funny. And you know what? I mean, here's the other thing, too. The guy, you can't argue. He's a hell of a director. Both of the Guardians of the Galaxies that he did for, for MCU were fantastic. Um, I mean, it literally changed Chris Pratt's world. I mean, you yeah, argue that. I mean, it turned him and, and Dave Batista's. Yeah, well, and I was just gonna say specifically for for him, it took him from Andy Dwyer <laughs> to Star Lord. That's a that's a massive jump, really quick, and something I think was great for everybody because it's. It, I mean, you and I we've talked about this before. I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast. I don't recall us talking about it, but my introduction to the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, because of where I grew up, not having access to comic books, that sort of a thing. Uh, my introduction was actually the films and I thought it was a hell of a great way to, to bring me in and to, to get me to buy in and be, be on board. So uh, the, the craftsmanship that James brings to the table, I think is going to be fantastic for helping revive the suicide squad and get it done uh, right. And in a way that'll be uh, engaging and just a hell of a good time. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, man. I have all the faith in the world and James Gunn. And like I said, from what I've seen in the sneak peek, Looks like they had a lot of fun doing it, and that really shows on screen. I really want that for a Suicide Squad because I felt when the first one came out, I was like, this could be the dark horse for the DCEU if done correctly. It was not done correctly the first time, but now they're giving the second chance, which which I think it should because in fact it's a great franchise. For sure. But like I said, all hope and you know all hope and uh, faith in James Gunn. I'm sure it's going to turn out great. Hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. Now, the next one is the one that really people were most anticipating for this whole, um, this whole little experience of DC fandom, the debut teaser for Matt Reeves' The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson as the Dark Knight. And personally speaking, I fucking loved it. I thought it was great. I was like, wow. I, like, it was not at all what I was expecting. Uh, if you watch the trailer, you first see it like you see somebody like getting taped up, and you don't you don't really necessarily know who's doing what, but you see this like body like in a chair with a uh, taped up face and like uh, more lives some kind of marker. Then you see a bunch of police coming to the crime scene, and you see your first glimpse of Jeffrey Wright as the first black Commissioner Gordon, and he looks great. He looks just like the he looked that they got the comic book look. 
perfect for him. I was like, wow, that's pretty good. And then you see little glimpses of boots and stuff like that. And then you get a first full shot of Robert Pattinson as Batman. And he looked dope in the fucking suit. I was like, whoa, yeah, that's what's up. Okay. And then they started getting into, you know, a little bit of uh, little flashes of what the storyline will be. Uh, the villain here uh, is obviously the Riddler because, in fact, throughout the whole thing, you hear him doing riddles um, uh, to Batman. Uh, I'm, I forgot exactly who's playing the Riddler, uh, but like uh, one thing that I did like about uh, this new look of the Riddler is actually it's a mix of two versions of the Riddler. There's uh, the original Riddler with he has like a green jacket. And the second version, which is the, the more recent version, he actually had a brief hiatus from being the Riddler and became a character called Hush. And he had like his face all taped up like uh, in like surgical gauze. And he really like, it really changed the game for him in terms of how he looked and shit. And like he became more badass as Hush. I was like, whoa, okay, that's what's up, man, okay. Uh, so it looks, it looks like they're doing a mix of the two. And then you see other clips of other characters in the movie. Uh, first one you see is a, a, a snippet of uh, Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. You see her like in a makeshift costume, like uh, breaking into some place. Um, and you also see, and this is the one that really skipped over a lot of people. I didn't I actually, I didn't catch it at first either. Uh, you, you see the first look of Colin Farrell as the Penguin. And he was completely unrecognizable. Like, he, like he, they got on in heavy prosthetics. I, 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 was like, I was like, who is this guy? I don't even know who this is. I was like, that's fucking Colin Farrell? Like, Damn. They, they wouldn't fall out in terms of the uh, makeup and shit. I'm like, whoa, okay. Uh, wasn't expecting how that, I wasn't expecting that look. Um, and then you see, um, I think the real kicker that really got a lot of people in terms of, like, uh, their faith in the actual... Um, what, what, uh, what they're going to do in terms of like what Rob Pattinson will bring to Batman. There's a scene where uh, some thugs are threatening Batman and he's like, oh, who are you supposed to be? He starts beating the shit out of one of the thugs like MMA style to the point where he actually beats him down and starts fucking like, does like fucking MMA ground and pound him motherfucker. And then he hits you with the voice, I'm vengeance. And his voice sounded good. And then you see the Batmobile, which they've revamped again and it looks more like a muscle car than fucking like a super tank that was in like the Chris Nolan movies or you know the long ass long the vehicle shit that was usually in the either the Tim Burton movies or uh, whatever the fuck that uh, Ben Affleck was driving in uh, Batman v Superman but it looks this practical it looks like an uh, actual performance vehicle I, I dug that uh, but I think that's really the moment where like and actually uh, one thing I noticed about the trailer and one thing I read in terms of like how they were they're going in terms of the direction is they were actually going for like what would be David Fincher's version of Batman. Like, because like a lot of people watching the trailers or whatever get, uh, compared it a lot to Seven, especially with the whole, you know, clues and, you know, dead bodies and shit like that. And then actually they, stay, they kept stating throughout the whole um process, especially Matt Reeves, they wanted to show Batman as a detective. Uh, you know, like, it's basically going to be a gritty crime story, which I like. I like that direction. And one thing that really um, kind of got me in terms of the look of the trailer was you see a lot of Nolan, a lot of Nolan, and also a little bit of Marvel's Daredevil. 
the Netflix show because like the costume itself, the mask is very similar to how they did the Daredevil uh, costume, and also him doing the ground and pound stuff. That was very much part of Daredevil's get down. So there are some comparisons to that. I can see that, but overall, and they actually they play a Nirvana track throughout the trailer, which I think is really cool. And I like I say a lot of people like have gone online and saying like we were wrong. Everybody thought that Robert Pattinson was going to be trash as Batman. Come to find out, he might be all right, myself included. So, okay. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about everybody except for Pattinson still. Okay. Because, yeah. look, we, we've talked about it over and over again. Long-time listeners will know. Batman, like, that's my gem. I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of comic book exposure as a kid coming up. Didn't have a lot of comic book movies with the exception of Batman, like that's, that's where all of this comic book geek stuff kind of started for me. So I'm, I'm kind of a purist in, in sort of what my, my envisioned uh, version of Batman should be. Um, I hope I'm wrong. And look, and I've, I've, I've said before, and it's the biggest wrong I've ever been, when, uh, when I heard Heath Ledger was playing the Joker, um, I, I hated it. I was ready for Batman to suck. I thought the Dark Knight was going to be the worst thing ever and that they were going to, you know, basically undo all the good work I felt they'd done with Batman Begins. And I could not have been more wrong. Um, I mean, Heath Ledger, as everybody who watched the movie, even if you're not a comic book person, absolutely slated. I mean, that, that film was fantastic. Um, and again, I'm still Marvel, like so many other people in the industry how Nolan avoided getting an R rating on that movie. The only thing I can think is that they basically got rid of blood splatter. Cause other than that, it was basically should have been closer to rated R. It was full of adult themes. It was a fantastic version of the dark Knight uh, kind of envisionment of Batman. I just, and again, it's, it's nothing against Robert Pattinson necessarily as an actor. It's just, it's one of those things like when we talk about, about Ben Affleck, right? I always, I always felt that his single biggest problem being Batman was he couldn't play Bruce Wayne, right? I didn't yeah. ever see anything from him that made me think I could buy him as this, um, you know, savant, genius, billionaire who also had that gruff side. Him being Batman was never a problem. I could see him as kind of a street guy going out there and beating some people up. It was that other yeah. I, I feel like I've kind of got more of an inverse problem with Pattinson. Um, I feel like I can buy him really easily, um, a lot easier anyway, playing the, the Bruce Wayne part. Um, I feel like it's going to just be really hard to, to make that jump to the Batman side with him. It's almost like, you know, they went one, too far one way, so now I feel like they've gone too far the other way. But, well, I mean, we'll see. I mean, I'm, I, I'll watch it because I love Batman. I love the, the Batman franchise. I love the character. And I hope I'm wrong, but... I, the, the trailer hasn't sold me yet. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. So just a couple quick things in terms of like the interpretation that they're going for for the Robert Pattinson Batman. So basically they're saying that Batman here is going to be around 30 years old and he's neither an experienced superhero nor a beginning crime fighter. He's just kind of in the middle. He's like Batman year two. And Matt Reeves himself said, he, I, I felt like, well, you know, I love this dude. Uh, what I would love to do is to get a version of this Batman character where he's not fully formed yet, where it's something to do in the context of who this guy would be in the world today, and also to ground him in all these broken ways. Because at the end of the day, this is the guy that is doing all this to deal with trauma from his past. Now, Pattinson himself actually stated that his voice that he's using for Batman is actually based on uh, his co-star from the movie Lighthouse, Willem Dafoe. 
So you base it on that. And also uh, in terms of preparation, he, drank, he trained um, in Brazilian, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with uh, the Machado brothers, who also trained uh, Keanu Reeves for John Wick, uh, which I see that a lot of that in there. And he also watched a lot of the um, movies of people that he felt were the true warriors of the superhero genre, like Robert Downey Jr., Chris Hemsworth, Chris Evans, Dwayne Johnson. And also uh, the past Batmans have actually voiced the support of Robert Pattinson, particularly Christian Bale, who told Pattinson to make the role his own and ignore critics. And also he got uh, some advice from Christopher Nolan himself and uh, also Ben Affleck uh, in terms of like, you know, just be do, do, do Batman your way. Now in terms of the rest of the cast, you got, uh, like I said, Zoe Kravitz's Catwoman, who apparently she had previously voiced the character in the Lego Batman movie. I just remember that. Yeah, she was Catwoman in that movie. You got Paul Dano as the Riddler. Uh, Jeffrey Wright again is uh, Commissioner Gordon. John Tortoro is in it as Carmine Falcone, who's like a crime boss. Uh, also, Andy Serkis is going to be Alfred. And like I mentioned before, Colin Farrell uh, will be the, the Penguin. And apparently, he gained weight and yeah, wore heavy prosthetic makeup for the Penguin. So like I said, even though you, you, haven't, you haven't been so yet, a lot of people have been and a lot of people are very excited about what the possibility of uh, what will be going on. Well, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily optimistic. I'm not sold. And I guess that's part of managing expectations. That having been said, I'm withholding final judgment till I see it all the way. Cause like I said, when it came to, to Heath Ledger, I could not have been more wrong. I mean, that, that guy obviously set the bar. And I think, you know, I, you and I've talked about this a hundred times. We can even talk about it a little more when we get in the meat potatoes today, but he set the bar so high for Joker and who and what Joker had to be. Um, there was, I don't think there was anything Leto, Jared Leto could have done that would have ended in anything other than people not liking it because if he'd have tried to copy what, what Heath Ledger did and people just say it was a you know, bad photocopy and doing something new, nobody wanted anything new yet because everybody was still sold on the last version, um, which you know, kind of worked out you know, very, very well when it came time to do the Joker film because everybody was ready for something fresh that had been, that well had kind of been poisoned to a certain extent, so you had to do something new anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, that's how, honestly, and to be, to be as sympathetic as possible with the actors, um, mm-hmm. out of all the characters that are, are the hardest um, to have to play, I think, the mm-hmm. superheroes that have been done uh, to a large extent have to be the hardest. I mean, there's been so many Batmans over the years between television and everything else that um, you, you can't help but be compared and anything fresh and new is going to be challenging because people have such uh, an intense kind of emotional connection. It's part of the reason why I think it's been so hard um, with something like Superman, right? I mean, yeah. they've, they've tried, they've tried and tried and tried to reboot that, but you know, it's just, how, how, how are you going to, how are you going to compete with Superman and Superman too? I mean, you know, there's too many people who still that's their connection to it, and that's your core audience. So, yeah, super, yeah, Christopher Reeve in particular. You, know you just be, you're you're always. I mean, the only the only time that I can think of where critically and commercially you can say without a doubt um, and really close back to back that two actors have played the same character and gotten a fantastic reception is you have to do Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro in Godfather and Godfather two. And even that's not entirely fair because one's playing an older version of a character and the other one's playing a much younger version. 
that's about the only time where it was universally just accepted, applauded, and everybody's like, wow, that was just fantastic. There was no argument amongst anybody. They're like, yeah, both of those guys slayed that character. And I think half the problem for, you know, a Batman thing is that with the exception of Dark Knight uh, Rises, you pretty much end up Batman's eternally like 35, right? Like that's kind of the sweet spot for every Batman always. That's kind of where they try to keep him. And so everybody constantly finds themselves with the same set of, of tools to work with and they're just given a slightly different setting. And so it's, it's really hard because you don't have as much room to make the character your own. You know what I mean? I got you. That's my directorial side where I'm trying to be fair to the actor because it's not, it's not his fault. I'm not saying like in terms of like, you know, being a person, because there's some actors, you and I can talk about like, Oh, I just hate that performance. I don't think that's good. Blah, blah, blah. It's nothing like that about him as a performer. I think he's, he's a, he's a fight actor for what I've seen. It's just mm-hmm. one of the ones where I just go, I don't know how you make that fit, but we'll see. Hopefully I, I would love it. I, I was so frustrated with, with all of the Bruce Wayne stuff when it came to uh, the last couple of Batmans of Batman, Superman. I'm yeah. loving the idea of being able to fall in love with the character again. So I, I hope, I hope that's all I'm going to leave it with. Okay, I got you. All right, since we talked about Batman and Superman and all those different interpretations of the character, uh, another big trailer that came out uh, during the DC fandom thing uh, that a lot of people were anticipating, the first official teaser trailer, Abel Snyder Cut of Justice League, the movie. Now, watching the trailer, it looks like a lot of the uh, scenes that were cut specifically and done specifically by Zack Snyder are going to be in this movie. It looks almost like a completely different movie. And it also shows a lot of stuff that they did not show in the theatrical run that was directed by Josh Whedon. Uh, like you can really tell a difference just in the trailer itself. You can see that you know, they, they feature characters that were not featured uh, in the theatrical cut. Like you see Darkseid for the first time, fully realized. And you also see, uh, there's also a portion with the Flash saving a girl. The girl is Iris West, uh, his longtime uh, uh, love interest and wife in the comic books. And also with uh, character Cyborg, you see his father, who was briefly seen in Batman v Superman and a little bit in, uh, just a little bit in Justice League. But you see him uh, in the trailer full on here, and it's tragic. Um, and also you see a lot more of the Flash and you see a lot more Aquaman, different shots that they were not shown in the actual uh, theatrical version. And also one of the big changes, Superman is not going to be in the, uh, the traditional uh, blue, red, and yellow outfit that he was in the theatrical. He's going to be in his black outfit uh, from the uh, Death of Superman comic book storyline. And it looks pretty good. Like you know what I'm saying, like they, they kind of briefly showed it in the, um, the latest scenes of the theatrical cut, but now you see it full on that he is going to be wearing that suit in this movie. Uh, like I said, it looks almost like a completely different movie, man. So, like, um, a lot of people are really excited. They want to see, you know, you know what's going to be better, what's going to be worse, et cetera. Uh, me, personally, um, I'm kind of whatever with it. Because, um, like I said, I'm like, we've seen a movie that I've seen already before. It might be all completely different, like, but if it's not better because of the fact that how much they've been hyping it up, like, I'm going to be like, okay, that's... That was worth all the hype. But uh, like I said, we'll see. I haven't seen it yet. Nobody's seen it yet. I, I, I'll figure it out when I see it. But uh, I mean, so what's your thoughts on that? 
since, since we're on the news thing for a second here, I think this is just, uh, this might be a good time to kind of just point out, there's, there's obviously something in the way of a, a managerial uh, kind of a crisis going on with DC in general. Um, you know, the, the one thing you, you, you can't say about Marvel Cinematic Universe is that there's a loss going on there in terms of direction. Right. I mean, they they've definitely they've got a master strategy for the MCU um, that they've laid out and they're executing flawlessly across the board there. They seem to be hitting everything at, at a minimum. You know, if we're going to put it in baseball terms, they're hitting at a minimum uh, doubles and singles and a pretty decent number of home runs. And it seems like, um, you know, whether this is what level of management this is happening at, who knows? Um, but it seems like there's a, a, a loss uh, going on inside of DC right now and that they don't seem to have a clear way forward to kind of maximize um, everything they have in, in the DC universe. Um, you know, there's, there's a sense of kind of lack of, of, of strategy. I mean, you know, obviously for them, uh, it's back and forth whether or not you want to argue Batman or Superman is the, the, the biggest properties they have, but those are obviously two of their biggest, most valuable properties. They had great success with Aquaman. They had great success with Wonder Woman, but they don't seem as of yet to be able to leverage that with the Justice League in the same way that you've been able to do it with the Avengers. And I think ultimately it's kind of, uh, it's disappointing and it's, it's detrimental to I think, the long-term health of, of DC because they're, you know, uh, whether you like it or not, even though they want to say, hey, the core of our business is comic books, the core is really shifted now to filmed entertainment um, and that's where they get the, the biggest returns. Um, and if they can't figure out how to better manage and, and maximize that return there and to, to do a better job of synergy between the different characters that all inhabit this universe, um, you know, I, I think they're, they're in for a lot more pain in the, in the long run. Yeah. But uh, like I said, we'll see what's going on with the whole thing with DC. Hopefully, Snyder Cut is all this cracked up. We'll see. I hope it's more. Uh, and the last little bit. That's what they need. <laughs> yeah, I was, was good too, yeah. Uh, last little bit, and this actually came in yesterday, and I was actually very excited to hear this. Uh, the director of John Wick, uh, Chad Stahelski, is interested in directing Marvel Studios' version of Blade. And I think if he did do it, it's going to be fucking killer, man. I, 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 yeah, because, like, all his sensibilities in terms of, like, martial arts and all that good stuff shows very well in the John Wick movies. And I just think he's really good at world building. And I really would like to see how this guy handles Blade. I think that could be a fantastic thing to do. Because uh, Blade is such a weird and complex character. Like, like, see, he's already created a world with John Wick. Let's go ahead and create another world with Blade. You know, like, Blade is, you know, the old established world of the vampires. Maybe we can change a few things up a little bit. Uh, it, the first the first few movies of Blade established uh, that world so well, especially the whole, you know, uh, David Goyer scripts that he would uh, come up with, man. And we talked about Blade at length before. Uh, but I think... Yeah, I think I think it'd be a good thing if uh, Mr. Stahelski uh, takes a crack at Blade. What do you think? The only thing I'm going to say, um, because I'm, you know, we've talked about a hundred times. I love Blade. I think it's a great character. But if he touches this, I'm going to be really upset. When he shoots this thing, there had better be 
just reams and reams worth of paper in the streets of LA, or I'm going to be really mad that he lost that because that's that's <laughs> all thing about paper everywhere. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like if you ever watched. If you watched or listened to our podcast about uh, what we did to watch Long for Blade and listen to us talk about it repeatedly since, there's like the ridiculous amounts of paper just in the streets of Los Angeles, according to the world of Blade. So, yeah, we got to have a lot of just random fucking paper <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you got yeah, to yeah, bring in the random things of paper. So, I agree with that. <laughs> All right, folks, let's get to the meat and potatoes of this. Potato. Now, AJ and I have been talking about doing something like this for a long time. We felt, you know, ain't really much else going on. Let's go ahead and drop the gun on this. Uh, We're going to talk about some villains. We talk a lot about heroes and all that good stuff, but you know what I'm saying? Like, just like the old saying goes, you know, a hero is only as good as his villain. The villain is there, you know, as the antagonist to provide that, you know, that obstacle for the hero to overcome. A hero can only be a hero if he has that obstacle. You know what I'm saying? And then the thing about villains is properly done villains don't even, like, the way they come across, they don't even really come across as villains. It's just like, really motivated people uh, that do a particular thing or have a particular goal. How they're going about it might be ruthless, but, you know what I'm saying, in their mind, they're not the bad guy. They, you, you People stopping me are the bad guys. Like, I'm just trying to do this thing. Like, it might be I'm going to rob a bank, but I'm robbing a bank to, you know, feed my family and all this other shit. But, you know what I'm saying, I'm not the bad guy here, man. Like, you know what I'm saying, I just, I just don't follow society's rules. Like, goody two-shoes, motherfuckers. You know what I'm saying? I'm, a, I'm my own man. Um, but yeah, it's like the villain itself really makes really makes a movie. Like a lot of cases, and well, actually in a lot of cases, yeah, the villain can overshadow the movie or the hero of the movie. Uh, and like there are plenty of movies, particularly in the horror genre, where the hero—I mean, sorry—the villain is the main character. That's kind of the staple of the horror genre. It's like you know, saying this killer, this vicious character, you know, is coming out of nowhere, killing on these people. Uh, somebody has to stop him, but he's he or she is unstoppable. Um, you know, and, like, it really amps up the tension of the movie, you know, especially if it's a very charismatic villain, you know, um, well, sometimes the villain don't really have to say nothing, just be an unstoppable monster, like your Jason or your Michael Myers, something like that. Uh, there's different types of villains that we can go into, uh, but I think uh, for just for discussion purposes, uh, I think we should we can, like classify certain villains and groups. Don't you think, AJ? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think because you can you can talk about and there there gets to be really interesting layers to it. So if you look at you know television and the serial side of stuff, that they're really kind of you know a lot of people say this. I think it's probably true. The um, the beginning of kind of where we're at now for for great serial storytelling probably have to go to, to The Sopranos. Um, and The Sopranos, you're following a anti-hero slash villain in Tony Soprano, right? I mean, he does all of these horrible things and it's part of this way of life that, that he 
chose to be in. Um, another good example from a little more recent would be looking at something like Breaking Bad with Walter White. So in, in both of those cases, you have people who made decisions and one, I think you could probably argue bad decision leads to another bad decision and leads to another bad decision. And when I say bad decision, I mean, it's putting themselves in situations where they only have choices of different levels of, of causing pain and harm to others. Um, and, and so when you get into those, those kind of uh, villains, it, it gets to be a lot more interesting and rich um, because when you're, you're digging into that, there is, at least in, in some sense, um, even if it's misguided, there's some sort of a kernel of something that, that might be seen as good or altruistic um, that ultimately ends up kind of being almost a shroud behind self-interest, right? So, you know, the whole point of Walter White, he keeps saying, I'm doing it for my family, I'm doing it for my family, I'm doing it for my family. There's a lot of things he could have done for his family that would have turned out better in the long run than the choices he made. Tony Soprano could have pretty much gone and done anything he wanted to, but he chose to be a mob boss and, you know, a lot of people die because of it. And even though he's trying to be less crazy, less violent, less weird than maybe some of the other guys that he has with him, he still ultimately is doing wrong. So you, you kind of get into this weird moralizing area with these villains that kind of, you know, sort of tread this weird space between anti-hero and total villainy which is why they're, they're more fun to follow if you're going to do a, a series that focuses on them. Um, and then at the, the other extreme, you have the Joker. And whether you look at Heath Ledger or Phoenix, um, you're now looking at a situation where you have somebody who's essentially um, at a minimum mentally ill, at a maximum anarchistic. And their whole idea, their whole motivation is just total and complete destruction. Um, which, you know, between those two kind of wide extremes, there's a lot of fun and interesting areas to, to develop, which again, like you said, you know, ultimately makes for a lot more engaging uh, entertainment. Because if you, if you did something like, um, you know, the, the Adam West Batman, we talk about the original Batman series uh, beforehand, you know, if you're that superficial, if everything is on the top, it's like, ah, I'm just going to, you know, I'm the penguin and I'm going to steal money because I'm going to, you know, corner the market on blah, blah, blah. Right. Like, you know, that's, wrap it up in 20 minutes. But if you want something that is going to be, play it some kind of truth or something else, um, you have to have three-dimensional villains. You have to have, varying motivations you have to have something more complex because ultimately the, the whole point right to having that idea behind motivations understanding what the what the, the villain is is doing and why um is because it ultimately helps um the audience with the suspension of disbelief you know i heard somebody say once that you know you're talking about sci-fi um the more outlandish the more crazy the more um, a suspension of disbelief that is required of the audience in inhabiting the world you're creating for them, the more basic, realistic, the conflict between the characters, the more human the conflict between the characters has to be in order to allow for that suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Um, actually, while you were talking, I actually looked up this great article on villains on Wikipedia, and it actually uh, goes over some villain archetypes, which like, if you want to describe them, We'll be like, oh my God, there's a bunch of villains just like that. Uh, the first one I see here is the false donor villain who basically uses trickery to achieve their own ends. Now, normally, 
a false donor villain would pose as a uh, benevolent figure, someone who's a good person, supposedly, and uh, is a good friend to the person who's a hero, and they'll offer them a deal. Now, the deal will, you know, uh, be a short-term solution for the hero, but in actuality, in the long term, it actually benefits the villain. Uh, so, like, the best example of this would be the classic Faustian deal, where somebody who is posing as the devil or who is the devil offers the good guy a deal. Hey, I'll give you this. Uh, all I'm going to ask for is your soul. So, I'll make you rich. I'll make you beautiful. You'll have you, you'll be, you know, powerful. You'll have all this, you know, materialistic stuff. But in the end, your soul belongs to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, so, a slightly less intense version of that would have been, um, oh, hell, I'm blanking on her name from uh, uh, Dark Knight Rises. Oh, uh, what's the name? Uh, Talia Agu? Yeah, when, when she's, she's basically buddied up next to Bruce Wayne and she's yeah. acting like she's going to help him save the city and everything. And then you have, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen this movie, it's been out for a decade. Um, <laughs> then you have turn where she turns around on him and literally stabs him. Yeah. Right? And you have that moment, which, you know, for, for everybody, um, because it did such a good job keeping you focused on Bane. I mean, that's one of the things Christopher Nolan did a fantastic job with. Everybody's focused on Bane. You feel like it's most likely Bane. So that when the turn actually happens and you find out that she was, you know, Raja Ghoul's daughter, that whole thing, it's like, oh, holy shit. Like you just, you know, paradigm shifting kind of moment. Um, but like you said, it falls into that same same kind of basic paradigm. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, another archetype they have here is uh, the beast. Uh, this is a, basically a villain that usually reply, reply, uh, excuse me, relies on their uh, instincts and they actually cause a lot of destruction to achieve their means. Now, the evil uh, intentions of this person is very clear and they basically have no concern for other people's well-being. Now, the, now, this is usually shown to be like a rampaging villain, a very powerful individual, or, or a rampaging beast, you know what I'm saying? And like, there's really nothing you can do but destroy it because the fact that, you know, it's basically devoid of all good, any any sort of good, you can't reason with it. Uh, that would be, you know, this would be like uh, the original Terminator would be the beast kind of character. You know, just like the Michael Bean character said, he can't be bargained with, he can't be reasoned with, he doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and he absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. That 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 really is a great example of the beast type character, the original, well, the, all the villainous versions of the Terminator. So that's a great example. Uh, but then, like I said, you go into the horror genre, there's Jason, you have Freddy, and it might not even necessarily be a humanoid character. It might be, you know, like a Godzilla or, or like a, some like monster, some like rampaging monster in a movie, you know what I'm saying? Like a, like a chill. Like, like, yeah, like a chud or the Tremors worms or like fucking like critters and shit like that or the gremlins. You know, like unstoppable fucking creatures and shit that, you know, really have no, you know, moral compass. They just want to destroy. So. We do, we do need to do a watch along of Leprechaun in the Hood. Uh, which one? Leprechaun in the Hood. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I just think about rampaging creatures. <laughs> Leprechaun in the hood. Oh my god! I still don't know that. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, so uh, we got that archetype down. Uh, also, uh, the authority figure, uh, which is a great character. Uh, and also, this character is basically uh, has attained a level of command or power, but because of that, he's a greedy son of a bitch. He always wants more, and he's also driven by this, you know, desire for material wealth, distinguished stature, or great power, and often kind of act like a monarch or like corporate climber, or just some other kind of powerful individual. Now, their end goal is basically complete domination of whatever they, whatever it is they're in charge of. If it's a corporation or a nation, or the world. You know what I'm saying? They basically are usually, and in most cases, this type of villain is usually defeated by their own greed, their pride, or their own arrogance. This will be like a Lex Luthor. You know what I'm yeah. saying? You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, especially the current modern version of Lex Luthor, where he's like the owner of LexCorp, he's like a multi-billionaire, he pretty much has everything a man would want material-wise, and he always wants more. He wants to be the guy. He doesn't want to be just the guy for my company. I want to be the guy, period, like, of the world. Like, freaking, like, I feel I'm the best fit to rule this world. Nobody should question me. I'm the best person for this job. You know what I'm saying? And I will, I'm going to get there one way or another. If I got to go through you, so be it. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of people like that. You know, you go to, like, even, not even necessarily comic book characters. Like, you just go to, like, different movies, like, you know, Wall Street. You know, Gordon Gecko, those type of characters, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, or, you know, mob bosses, you know what I'm saying? Like, in various different movies, they're just trying to get more and more powerful. They go to war with other families just to attain more power. Or even in hood movies, you know what I'm saying? Somebody leads one gang, they want to lead all the gangs, you know what I'm saying? So, like, that kind of thing that can go in different levels, man. And uh, I always like the authority figure, like, villain, uh, because like, he's like, you know, I'm this, I'm, I'm the baddest man, whatever. But like, yeah, he always ends up getting defeated by his own goddamn greed. Like, it's always that linchpin. He is his own worst enemy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's that, uh, it's that uh, seven deadly sins thing where, you know, ultimately his, his lust for power and his, his greed ends up being his undoing. Because at, at every, every point in time, you know, you never have, and it's because it wouldn't be satisfying. I mean, there's obvious reasons why you don't do it this way, but you never have those guys where it's like, oh, there was a car accident or an icicle snapped off the roof, and that's how he ended. Like, that, that's not the way this goes. Every time they over some, some minor detail, they over end up being what pulls everything down on their heads. So it's, a, it's definitely a well-tried uh, villain category, and it's a very entertaining one for a reason. Yeah. All right, so uh, the last little archetype I got here is uh, called the traitor. Uh, this is a villain who uh, emphasizes traits of, of uh, trickery, manipulation, and deception to achieve their goals. Uh, it's often to offer, you know, they usually offer like some sort of information to uh, to help the hero, but then like in that, uh, basically they'll, they'll they'll help the hero in exchange for like their freedom or for their safety. Like I'll help you out. But make sure, you know what I'm saying, you make sure you, you know, I'm cool, nobody comes after me. But then, you know, the traitor, you know, for the most part, usually ends up, you know, fucking over the hero just to save their own ass. And a lot of times, this type of villain is usually killed, uh, trying to be fucking greedy and trying to, you know what I'm saying, be selfish. They usually, and like, I, I, I've seen a lot of movies that usually end up getting fucked up really bad. So, like, the traitor is a character that, you know, you see all the time, especially in crime movies. 
Like, I'll help you out if you get me out, you know what I'm saying? And then, like, once I'm out, fuck you, bye. And, and then, and then you know what I'm saying? Next thing, next thing you know, they go on, like, I'm free, I'm free. And then they get hit by, by a car or some bullshit like that. You know what I'm saying? I always get something. So, yeah, like the, you know, one of the, the classic Westerns, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, yeah, uh, Tuco. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Real piece of shit in that movie, yeah. So, but, yeah, ultimately, he got here. So, and I'm not spoiling anything for those who haven't seen the good and the bad knowing it's over, it's over fucking 50 years old. So if you ain't seen it, I don't give a fuck at this point. So take a take a film history class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh there's other types of villains here they show here. Like uh one villain that I like, uh the female villain, the seductress, you know what I'm saying? The villainess. Now, uh, a lot of times they can have just a regular straight uh villainess where she's just an amoral person. Uh, but because of the fact she's a woman, they tend to emphasize, you know, the feminine traits, you know, to uh, be, you know, the, the traits that are basically exclusive to them. They try to use them you know, for the, the, uh, the villainous allure. Uh, usually, uh, villainesses are beautiful, very beautiful women, but like rotten to the fucking core. And, you know, there's a classic, classic examples of, you know, the succubus is usually a beautiful female. And you know, she usually, you know, uses her beauty to more or less suck a person dry, suck away their soul, you know what I'm saying? Or she'll use her beauty to manipulate others and have them do, like, crimes for her, you know what I'm saying? Just like, uh, you know, I, I'll give you, like, if you do this for me, I'll give you some, that kind of shit, just keep them dangling on the rope and shit. And, you know what I'm saying, they'll do anything for her, and she knows that. And just uses people like that. Uh, I always like the seductress, man. Like uses sex as a weapon, that kind of shit. One of uh, one of the, one of the probably even more basic ones. Um, and she doesn't all the way. I mean, there's no there's nothing sexual in it because um, of the age of the the people. But even on a more basic level, there was that classic Simpsons episode with Reverend Lovejoy's daughter um, and Bart. Yeah, yeah, that's right. She was like uh, she was Bart, and come to find out, she like is worse than Bart. Yeah, she'd set, she'd do these horrible stuff, and then she'd essentially frame Bart over and over again. And Bart was, you know, trying to get away from her. And he's like, "Look, you know, you're 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 crazy. You know, this is why are you doing this kind of thing?" She's like, "Oh, come on, don't you like me?" That kind. Of, so, like on an even more juvenile level, you can yeah. see that same. Um, and eventually, you know, she gets caught in this whole thing again. This is like. 25 years old. So if you haven't seen it, that's kind of on you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. At this point, like, yeah, if it's over 20 years old, fuck it. I'm sorry. Well, and even to put it even a little more modern, I mean, that's the whole point uh, to a certain extent behind the concept of Catwoman in the Batman franchise. She's, she's essentially a succubus. Yeah. She's this, this evil, you know, cat burglar, essentially. Um, mm -hmm. The, when she gets cornered or she gets into a spot, she can't get away. She uses her, her sexuality to essentially kind of, you know, confuse Batman as best she can. And then as soon as she sees an avenue of escape, she's out. Basically. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the female villain is all definitely what we're going to go over. Uh, this last one here, uh, the sympathetic villain, which we kind of briefly talked about. Uh, this is a villain that has the typical traits of a villain, but actually differs in terms of motivation. Their intentions to cause chaos or commit evil acts are usually driven by this ambiguous motivation or not driven by the intent to cause evil. Their intentions may well, coincide with like, their ideals of the greater good or a desire to make the world a better place, but their actions are inherently evil by nature. Uh, they often uh, 
these characters often fall into this care. They often like uh, are created with the intention of humanizing them, making them more relatable to the person, to the viewer, and posing as to how or why, you know, what's behind their motivations, other than making them just a one-dimensional villain. Uh, and actually, a lot of ways, uh, because of their motivations, most of these villains are usually called anti-villains. So, like I mentioned before, like we talked about uh, Black Adam. Like I said, he does fucked up shit, but he's doing it for the greater good. You know what I'm saying? Like, in the end, like, basically, that's the whole, the whole thing about Thanos that people love so much. It's like, freaking like, yeah, he's going to destroy half the universe, but he's doing it more or less to save the universe because he feels the universe is like subject to, you know, uh, overpopulation and eventually it will destroy itself. So if I take out half the people, you know, we'll be able to save ourselves. Like, yeah, this is fuck, this, the shit I'm doing is fucked up, but y'all can fake me for this later. Trust me. Yeah, but that that's a that's a super sip, slippery slope when you get on because that's literally that's literally the ideology behind the Third Reich and Hitler. You know, exactly. I agree. This kind of thing going on because like I think because there's definitely layers to it because like I was, like we we're talking about before, you know, when you look at Walter White in Breaking Bad or even Tony Soprano. There, there seems to be some sort of a, a basic core thing that whether it's true or not, at least what they tell themselves and they tell everyone else, it's about I'm taking care of my family, I'm taking care of my kids, I'm taking care of my wife, and this is the only way I know how to do it, or this is the only way I can figure out how to do it. And so there's this um, kind of universal appeal to it, but it can very easily spin off very quickly into something where, um, you know, it's, it's genocide. <laughs> And, and you still claim to have the same under underpinnings, but I, I think probably the easiest way to describe it is it's like it, it to the character, right? To, cause that's what we're talking about to the villain. There's yeah. ideation of some sort of um, moral rightness to their actions, but it's devoid of, devoid of, of any and all other morality. Like there's no other consideration as to how all these other things are wrong. So like with Thanos, right? Like the, the excuses, well, I'm doing it to save the universe, but it's like, well, what's the point of saving the universe if you've gotten rid of the people, right? Because the, 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 the inhabitants, all the aliens and everybody, because the whole idea is, well, we need to do this for everyone, right? It, it's become sort of like this weird utilitarian argument where it's like, well, we're going to get rid of this many to save this many. It's like, no, that's, that, that, that kind of, you know, is self-canceling at a certain point, you know what I mean? Like, because how do you, yeah. who actually is, worth hanging around versus who we should get rid of. True. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that, yeah. I was say it could be just as much fun as like the anarchic, vil- anarchic villain when you get down to motivations and stuff because there's a lot of interesting places to explore when you're looking at it from a, a storytelling perspective. Yeah. And as we were talking about this, I was just thinking in, like, in terms of like what we can discuss in the next coming weeks in terms of types of villains we can talk about. Uh, first one that popped in my head was, uh, of course, comic book villains because we've been talking about, you know, uh, we're both fans of like Lex Luthor and the Joker and characters like Thanos and stuff like that. But one thing that most superheroes are known for is their rogues gallery of villains. That's kind of the whole gist of the comic book get down is, you know, uh, each week, he, each episode or each issue, this character is fighting this villain that he's fought before or a new villain that comes in. And like, how would they deal with this villain? This villain might almost kill him. Like, how is he going to overcome? Now, there are several heroes with really great rogues galleries, like Spider-Man, 
you know, Dr. Octopus, the Green Goblin, you know, uh, freaking um, Craven the Hunter, Electro, Mysterio, uh, like just different characters like that, Venom, Carnage, you know, a lot of people love Spider-Man's Rose Gallery. And then on the other side, Batman's Rose Gallery. That's one of the more famous ones. The Penguin, the Joker, the Riddler, Catwoman, Two-Face, Clayface, goddamn... Uh, Poison Ivy. Yeah, Poison Ivy. Uh, Bane, Mr. Freeze, you know, characters like that. And even going to Superman. Superman doesn't really have a bad one either. Like, he has Lex Luthor, Bizarro, Brainiac, the Toy Man, Mr. Mixius Pillard, which is a, a big favorite of mine for some reason. <laughs> I love Mr. Mixius Pillard. Uh yeah, and then uh, you go into like newer villains like Doomsday and Mongol, and, you know, uh, characters of that nature. So like many heroes have really great Rose Gallery. Uh, some of them like are and one one version of the villain that I do like in terms of comic book villains is the dark side villain, whereas like the villain itself is literally a dark side of the hero. What if the hero went bad? Uh, they usually have the same powers as the hero. Uh, but their motivations obviously are quite different. So, like we already talked about Shazam and Black Adam. Uh, we talked about, you know, well, Spider Man and Venom. Or you can go, you know, actually, you can go with uh, Superman General Zod. Well, you know, yeah, you know, which actually is my favorite film villain for, uh, for Superman General Zod. Well, what I was going to say is so, so interesting about that, um, at, least, at least to me. What you're really coming down to at the end, end of, uh, of the day, when you really dig into it, each one of these characters, right, they, they, it all boils down to a point in time when they make a decision. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of one of those weird, funny things about life in general, but when you, they're, they're, and sometimes you know, to, know that this is going to be one of those moments, sometimes you don't, but there's moments where you make a decision and that decision ultimately takes you down one path or the other, right? So like, for an example, something in real life, you know, and this is going to get dark for a second, but just stick with me. So like you think about um, child molesters, almost exclusively child molesters generally tend to be people who were themselves molested. And at some point in time, because it, there's all the different psychological stuff you can go into stuff kind of screwed around in their head. And they've now decided that that's something they're going to do. And then they engage in that. Well, somebody who, and we've talked about this at least off air a couple of times, somebody who's a huge hero of, of, of mine, I think of yours as well, is Rodney Dangerfield. Now, Rodney Dangerfield was, it's a horrible chapter in his life, but for about, I think it was a period of about three years, he was molested. And he very easily could have gone down that same road full of destruction and, and, and heartache for other people and all these other things, whereas instead he decided that wasn't what he was going to do. He tried his best to, to live a good life. He raised his kids before he chased down fame and fortune and all the rest of the things that he did after his kids were out of the house and his, his wife had passed away. And then he spent the rest of his life trying to bring as many people up and along with him. I mean, so many great comedians that we all know owe their start to Rodney Dangerfield. So when you bring that into a storytelling perspective, um, when we're talking about, you know, Spider-Man versus Venom, different things like that, there's instance, there's moments where regardless, and, and the reason I use the child molesting one as an example is because it's literally one of the most horrendous things a person could endure. To go from having that and being, okay, I can either continue the cycle and victimize somebody else because somehow that's going to alleviate my pain 
or you know make my pain worthwhile again whatever you want to kind of couch it in um whatever we're talking about. i mean even like batman right you know batman could have easily been like well you know i didn't have a parent either so get over it and been you know a, a robbing murdering uh um, asshole like the people who killed his parents um it's that moment of decision as to what you're going to do with that pain and what you're going to do with that that setback what you're going to do with the injustice and so i think that's what kind of makes especially those heroes like you're talking about where you have it's almost like it's two sides of the same coin right it's that that two-faced harvey dent kind of a thing yep you could have gone either way and so it's interesting from a from a viewer or a reader standpoint to be able to sit back and to, to watch the mirroring images of if you do the right thing if you do the wrong thing yeah. Uh, and since you mentioned that in terms of like uh, abuse, people becoming uh, villains, we can actually, like I said, we talked about comic book villains. Another set of villains we can get into, horror movie villains. For sure. Uh, you know, yeah, most horror movie villains, usually they, if they give somewhat of an origin story, that character, for the most part, was abused, neglected, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, and basically not, just like you talked about, say, like, uh, to alleviate their pain, they take out pain in others. But we can go into the classic uh, villains, like terms like the universal ones, like uh, or you know, monster, or Doctor Frankenstein himself, who really is the real villain of the story. To me, right. yeah. And then, um, yeah. And then uh, we go to like other ones, like you know, classic, you know, science gone bad, that mad scientist, you know, like uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, you know, good doctor takes his potion. Um, more or less to explore his own duality and unleashes his dark side, you know, or, you know, even more so the Wolfman, you know, nice guy, you know, actually got bit saving somebody's life, but he actually, or the person died, but he tried to save somebody's life, ends up being cursed, become, you know, the thing that he killed, a fucking werewolf. And now, he, now he, uh, he's scared of full moons, he changes into a monster, kills people, and Rome, you know, and like savagely kills people and now roams the woods, you know, saying at night and shit. Uh, but yeah, all those different, like, different motivations that, you know, make characters like that, you know, tick, you know what I'm saying? And like, especially Dracula. Dracula is shown more often than not to be a completely amoral character, you know, devoid of all humanity. Like, even though he looks like a man, there's no humanity in that motherfucker at all. Like, just blood-sucking... Uh, immortal fucking wizard slash bad, depending on interpretation. Always like trying to eat a, a, a act to modern society or take over the world. You know, whenever they do like a, just a stereotypical modern uh, horror thing, like in terms of like we a bad guy for a horror story, they usually pick Dracula. And that's why he's like the most, I think he's the most like, uh, repeated villain in history. Like, I mean, they've been like, in terms of like uh, the history of film, I don't think there's been any villain been betrayed more times than Count Dracula. And there's a reason for that, because the character is very strong, the character is enduring. And depending on the interpretation, the character can be quite seductive uh, and alluring to either females or just to, to people that, you know, like to indulge in their dark impulses. They think Dracula will be the archetype for that. Well, there's that, that hypnotic. Um side of things that he has where he's able to essentially kind of um, 
lower people's guard, lower their inhibitions, that sort of a thing. But just as you were talking about it, again, talking about when you get the inverse, um, that's one of the things I think for me that, that made me fall in love with, with Blade, right? Because again, we talk about something like, um, you know, like you said, Superman General's on or something like that. You get to see yeah. the flip side of what if you went the other way. And so that's what you get with Blade, right? You, you, everybody, like you said, the most probably reproduced character of all time in film, uh, you could argue would be Dracula or a Dracula-like character. Well, Blade was the first opportunity to say, well, what if you had uh, um, somebody who was essentially fighting on behalf of humanity against it with the same powers? And then you get on top of everything else, he's also a daywalker. Yeah. A whole nother category, which which creates again this whole new great and interesting. And I mean, I guess for for me, when when we talk about about villains and when we talk about storytelling in general, what makes something worth exploring and interesting and engaging and entertaining is how fertile is the ground um, that that you're kind of digging into as you're trying to kind of look for something. I mean, you know, the the biggest criticism that you get from um, I guess you could call it intelligentsia or something be you know on something like a like a marvel movie they talk about it you know it's it's disneyland it's a popcorn flick it's this out of the other and it's like well yeah i mean to a certain extent i guess you could argue with those effects driven films that there's a lot that gets put on on the entertainment value of you know how good is the cgi special effects blah 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 what makes one of those films enduring where people will go back and watch it over and over again as it comes down to, to the story and how fertile is the ground, how interesting and engaging are the ways that they decided to look at, um, you know, cause I mean, here's the thing we've been as people, we've been telling each other stories since we developed language. I mean, you can't, you can't go anywhere in the world, find anybody who in their culture historically have not been telling each other stories forever, going all the way back to before we had the written word. Right. So, the fact is there's not, there's not really anything that you're going to get into that hasn't been uh, explored, I guess is probably the best way to describe it, at some level or another. The, the, what makes something uh, engaging and something that will stand the test of time is how fresh is the look you're taking at it and, and how deep do you actually get into it. I mean, everybody talks about Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man and him being, you know, it's the role of a lifetime. So one that he was made to, to play and everything else, like, okay. Well, yeah, there's something about his timing and his sarcasm and his presence in that that, that makes it um, a good and entertaining film. But ultimately, this whole, this whole kind of concept that he's exploring as Tony Stark where, you know, he's, it, it's, almost, it's almost somewhat similar to uh, Robert J. Oppenheimer, if you're familiar with that, the, one of the inventors of the nuclear bomb. You've created something with so much power and you were just focused on the creation part that now you're sitting here trying to figure out, oh man, did I, did I unleash something that I shouldn't have? And then it's, you know, watching him try to figure out in some ways, essentially how to redeem himself and how to uh, control the genie, even if he can't get it back in the bottle so that ultimately stuff's better. He leaves a better world behind than it was when he started here. You know what I mean? Oh shoot, did I lose you? I think no, I no, no, you didn't. Um, I just unmuted real quick. But yeah, I agree with you on everything you said. Um, another type of that uh, villain that we can go over when we get a chance, uh, which I think would be really, really cool to discuss. We have kind of discussed it a little bit, but we didn't really go in depth. Bond villains. Oh yes. Yeah. So we kind of went over like a few of them that were kind of like our favorites. 
we never actually went super in depth as to you know different types of Bond villains or you know who uh, like like it, it, Bond himself has characters that are sort of like the inverse character, like you know Scaramanga, which is a favorite of mine. Where you know what would happen if James Bond went bad? You pretty much got Francisco Scaramanga or like a uh, Alex Trebellian, if you want to go that route. So I think it'd be interesting to go into the other ones that you know we haven't really talked about, like all the different ones from Spectre. You know all the different groups that he goes up against. Spectre, Smash, you know, <laughs> all those real ones. So, uh, we did have to go to town on that one. Well, you, you know, what I was gonna say is kind of great when you look at um, these different uh, characters and that even within the genres or outside of the genres, depending on how big or small you want to make your lens. Um, there's the ones that have really stood the test of time as far as following a specific hero actually have such a wide variety of villains and motivations that it's, it keeps the audience guessing enough that they want to keep coming back. They want to stay in the story. They want to experience it along with the character. You know, the, the one I'm going to say, like, that I think, unfortunately, jumped the shark, like, probably four, four movies ago, but after James Bond. Um, it got to a point, I think that's probably part of what's hurting them more than anything else, you, you started out and the interesting novel thing you had there was it was a self-interested, self-motivated villain um, in, in the first movie. And it was, you know, essentially covering up for their culpability in the second movie. And by the time he gets a uh, shit, I think it was the fifth Bond film that they just had in Vegas. It was literally essentially the same thing again. Okay. Somebody at the CIA is a bad guy. And so, you know, like, as soon as they show you the first CIA guy, you're like, okay, that's the bad guy. And so it kind of has the unfortunate tendency of just burning out the entirety of what you got there. And so it, it, at a certain point, the audience just kind of loses enthusiasm because there's nothing there. But with, with Bond and all the different characters that you've mentioned um, and going even beyond that, there's a variety of motivations in there. There's a variety of, of complexity to each one of the villains, their motivations, and then ultimately, because of that, their you know modus operandi, the way they actually get stuff done, um, that really makes for rich and kind of interesting stuff. So, I mean, I, I just say, and we can see what what people uh, message us about or whatever. But maybe a good way to look at it, rather than going just by um, villain archetypes, maybe we can start out going via different story canons and then exploring the variety of those kind of archetypes we discussed. Um, within that one so we can spend some time in Batman talk about different archetypes we see in there like you said Bond different archetypes in there and, and kind of see how they how they played out how they were portrayed and kind of the outcomes and the interesting um, new and novel things that you you kind of find about those personalities and motivations I agree with that I totally agree with that uh, particularly like I said we talked about Batman's uh, Rose Gallery earlier there's so many diverse uh, types of villains in the Batman, uh, uh, Batman like the uh, Rogues Gallery and stuff. And actually, there's a great documentary if you ever get a chance to watch it. Uh, the Psychology, I think it's yeah, I think it's called The Psychology of the Dark Knight. Uh, where it, it came out around the same time as uh, I think The Dark Knight Rises, where they did like a bunch of like uh, the History Channel did like a bunch of documentaries on Batman. One of them was like Batman Tech. The other one was like uh, Batman's. Uh, psychology and shit, and uh, when they uh, went to the villains, they're talking about all the different psychological like terms that you know will be used for the villains. 
like uh, the like uh, the Riddler would be a narcissist or catwoman or kleptomaniac. Uh, the Joker himself is basically just you know the, you know, the unhinged id, you know that kind of thing. Chaos, uh, you know, like all the different like uh, analyzing all the different villains psychologically. I think it'd be really good because, like I said, Batman's Rogues Gallery is probably one of the meatiest ones in all of comics. And like I said, there's other ones that come close, but really none of them really touch Batman. Well, and, and uh, again, what you were just kind of to bring it back on the business side a little bit, what you just described is fantastic synergy. I mean, that was that was a point in time where you could say without question, uh, you know, the, the, the minds that were running everything at DC definitely knew what they were doing and knew how to maximize uh, their, their press and their presence um, in everybody's minds. And something I, I know I saw um, several other studios at different times try to, uh, to emulate there was some movie, I can't remember what it was called, but it was like, there was this um, actress, oh shit, I can't remember the actress's name, but the idea was she was basically investigating um, these plagues, like, you know, the 10 plagues from, um, from uh, uh, the Passover when Moses was, was talking to Pharaoh to get out um, in Egypt. So anyway, she's supposed to be investigating these 10 plagues uh, at, that were occurring in some small town in like Georgia or Alabama or something like that. And um, they actually released a, uh, a documentary on the History Channel at the same time that uh, around the same time in the lead up to it that was basically trying to find scientific explanations behind all of the different plagues that were discussed uh, in the Old Testament. So things like that, you kind of think about, okay, what are all the different ways that we can uh, maximize our media presence behind a big release? That's that's the kind of stuff that um, when it's done right can be really entertaining and fun. And like you said, getting into this thing with the Batman tech, I mean, I'm surprised I've seen one thing where they, they kind of went back and they talked about how um, James Bond uh, kind of, you know, created some stuff out of whole cloth that then created entire industries. Like for example, you know, sea dudes and jet skis and all that, that wasn't really a thing until, Oh shit! It was showed up. Yeah, it showed up in the James Bond movies. Yeah. Do you remember which film it was? It was a, I think it was the one in uh, in Louisiana. Oh, uh, Live and Let Die. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Live and Let Die. Was the first time he had one. We can get fact checked by our fans. That's fine. But uh, yeah. anyway, that whole thing literally launched an entire industry. Where you talk about like Star Trek, right? There's. I know I've seen documentaries on Star Trek tech where they talk about how like transport obviously we're not transporters but like the little communication wristwatches and different stuff cell phones all that stuff was basically crazy ideas that people were spouting off about in the 70s and i mean you look where we're at now it, it literally it's one of those things where science fictions uh, in a lot of ways became science fact um so i think on a bond side of things you could really really have some fun, especially if you stay away from like some of the comic booky things that you get into and just in some of the more realistic things I get in, you can have a hell of a lot of fun with some Bond stuff for sure. I agree with that. Uh, also, like another subgenre we can tackle when we get a chance, uh, we talked about you know the classic universal horror characters. What about the more modern slasher characters? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like you know, say we, I mentioned before Jason. Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, you know, maybe Leatherface or Chucky, Killer Doll, you know, different or the more modern ones like, you know, Jigsaw, Saw, or uh, what's the other motherfucker? Uh, I think that's really the main one. Well, modern the shit. thing I'll throw in there with, with Leatherface is that um, it's two steps beyond reality. 
because that yep. was actually that was actually inspired by I know uh, some real case files with some pretty gruesome um, serial killers. So that one, that one actually, I think we could have a little more fun on the psychological end, just because they they were actually working on something a little little more fertile. Um, and if we go down that road, we can eventually end in deliverance pretty quick too, because <laughs> there is a lot of really sick, twisted, crazy stuff in reality. You don't have to have it all happen in the, uh, in the realm of science fiction or comic books. I agree with that. Yeah. And I'm just trying to think of other villains that a lot of people like, or like uh, villains in pop culture. Uh, in terms of uh, like TV and movies, ones are not necessarily you know, uh, well they were, cre- they were created. They weren't necessarily created by like novels or anything of like that sort, but they were created for television or created for movies, and they became you know pop culture phenomena. My favorite movie villain, which we discussed this before, uh, Hans Gruber. So yeah. we talk about you know action movie villains. Yeah, and you know the the funny thing with action movie villains. Generally speaking, they they almost always uh, tend to to lend themselves a lot more towards um, you know people who are essentially just doing something on a financial end of things. They're 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 purely motivated by greed. Um, you know, at the end of the day, almost all of them. And again, there's you know there's definitely caveats to it, but most of them are just looking for you know financial incentive to themselves. And it doesn't mean that they can't be you know rich or interesting. I mean, like your whole point with like Hans Gruber. Uh, I mean, it's hard, you're hard pressed to find a more creative villain in terms of going about getting what he wants. Um, what was it? Uh, Inside Man. That's about the only other one I can think of. And even that one's kind of weird because you can argue that, um, that the villain in that one's not necessary. I mean, it's one of those ones you have to argue, okay, well, which one's really the villain? And, yeah. you know, and it's all like he's, he's, you know, got an, uh, an altruistic, uh, motivation, but I don't know. It's, it, and again, those are the ones I think get to be a lot more fun, a lot more interesting because there's so many layers to it. Was it right? Was it wrong? How he did this, how he did that. And then of course the creative aspect of how they're able to pull off the heist, especially in the heist movies, you know, it can get to be very, uh, very engaging very quickly, I think. But we can't, we can also get into like some movie villains that were like, you know, just, completely like also like uh we can go to the authority figure one more time i was thinking because i watched this the other night nurse ratchet you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah you know crazed fucking authority figure she you know what I'm saying was imposing her will on these mentally ill people and shit and yeah like it's like she does some very wicked shit especially towards the end of the movie man well, we could even uh, we could even as we're going down that road, we could even look at some that uh, maybe started out great and at a certain point kind of got corrupted or ruined. I mean, one of one of the best ones I can think of, um, and this is probably because I do all the the other work and stuff I do um, working in true crime and everything else on on the volunteer side. Um, Hannibal Lecter. Now, yeah. if Hannibal Lecter in in both uh, Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon. Um, I think they did a really great job um, with the psychology, with the motivations, and with creating um, something that was truly terrifying that required pretty much zero suspension of disbelief. Majority of the stuff you see and experience in both of those films um, are very strongly rooted in reality. Um, by the time you get to Hannibal, it's, it's verging on the edge. And then if you've ever had the misfortune of seeing Hannibal Rising, 
Um, you know, the, the worst part about the film is that, um, in my opinion, I think they, they kind of took the easy way out in trying to essentially shift Hannibal from this complex and rich character to, to shift him into something more akin to a comic book character. Um, you know, they, again, knowing and understanding and having research, knowing where the whole cannibalistic side of things comes from and where certain motivations psychologically would be in a person like him. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Like, I don't even feel like doing a spoiler alert because it wasn't that, wasn't that great of a film, but they basically explain away this sadomasochistic weird sexual thing that he's got. Um, and, and the side of him being a cannibal to, you know, it being the result of uh, an unfortunate experience during World War II where uh, he, you know, unknowingly uh, ended up eating his sister after these, you know, these guys killed her and fed him to him. And then, you know, he just ended up being a weird guy after that. And, you know, they, they, they really glossed over what would have been um, a more interesting, I think a more accurate way to kind of understand who and what um, a, a true villain like that would be. So we could always get into um, certain times because, you know, no matter how long you go at a certain point, um, it seems like everybody jumps the shark, right? I mean, we can, we can talk about it in Star Wars. We can talk about it in Star Trek. We could talk about it in the MCU, DC. Like, it's just an unfortunate reality. Um, everybody jumps the shark. Kind of ruining something fantastic that they had made because they're just you know they're trying to make a living true um i was gonna say uh since you talk about hannibal rising uh yeah i did have the unfortunate pleasure of seeing it well i don't really call it a pleasure um <laughs> actually I, I, walked, I walked out of that shit i mean I, I remember that now as you said i was like yeah this this is trash so uh I walked, yeah i walked out of that and then um I rewatched Hannibal a couple of days ago. I was like, fucking like, that was, uh, I, I forgot how harsh that movie is. Like, fucking what, Ray Liotta eats his own brain, plus uh, a piece of his brain, and then what, what's the other shit? The other shit where Gary Oldman get fed, gets fed to fucking pigs. Well, I was going to say that the one thing they did a great job with in the movie Hannibal that was actually better than the book. So, in the book, um, and I know from what I, from what I recall, I think the, the author um, got a lot of pushback from a lot of other uh, people that they talked to originally when they were writing the original books. Because I know they did a lot of research, which is why Science of the Lambs and Red Dragon is so good, both as novels. Um, is that in the book, uh, Clarice runs away with Hannibal Lecter at the end when he makes the offer. They, they run off together. She falls in love with him. And that, that to me would have been so ridiculous and so just beyond the pill. Because if you ever talk to anybody who, who works those kinds of cases, who deals with serial killers, the, the thing that they need to be able to do their job is they have to be able to um, understand the motivations behind uh, the, the people they're chasing, the, the unsub as they're, they're referred to as the, the perpetrator, right? They have to be able to I don't know if the right word would necessarily be empathy, but you have to be able to put yourself in their headspace. And that's part of where they're able to kind of determine what's wrong. So why did they do what they did? How did they behave before the crime, during the crime, after the crime? There has to be an understanding to them to be able to get there. So there is an identification with the offender in that they're able to piece together all these different things they're seeing. Now, the flip side, that the general public never really gets a piece of, and that, again, I think was lost in the book, is 
they're literally seeing the ramifications of the most horrible things you will ever find happening to people, both in terms of the pictures, the videos, sometimes the autopsies, things like that, of the body of the person who was destroyed, and then the additional victimization of that person's family or friends, and then they themselves end up caring for the rest of their lives, those memories of having been involved in the way they were. So I, I just, I, I can't get my head around, I can't imagine there would ever be a time where somebody who is, is working as a profiler for the FBI would be like, oh, you know what? I actually did fall in love with this guy. You know, when I saw all the horrible shit that he did to this person and the way he tortured them, oh, and then, you know, that whole part where they're a cannibal, that's just attractive. I think I need more of that in my life. Like, yeah. it's just patently ridiculous from the word go. Everybody just looks at it and they go, what? I mean, how high are you right now? Why did you even write that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, <laughs> Um, actually, we're going to have to wrap this up real quick. Actually, I have to be a little bit uh, later. Um, but uh, like I said, we've already established pretty much that we're going to be talking about villains for the next week. So we're going to go over what types of villains we're going to do, what type of categories we're going to do for villains. But we really hope you guys are going to enjoy what we're going to do. And also, like I said, we're still working on trying to get a watch along going. Uh, we have one, um, and we already have one is just trying to figure out like when would be the proper time for us together and uh, get that done for you guys. So uh, again, I really hope you enjoy the show uh, and uh, really hope that you don't tune in next week or whatever we might do. But uh, until then, uh, this has been Dropping That Culture with JD and AJ. I'm JD. And I'm AJ. And we'll see you guys next week. Dropping That Culture. Later. Dropping That Culture. Dropping That Culture. Dropping that coast. 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 Dropping that coast.